Hello, my name is Ashley Lambert, and this is Fairy Sleepy, a podcast to help you fall asleep. So, close your eyes, take a deep breath, settle in, and get ready for tonight's story, The Witch of Fife, from the book The Scottish Fairy Book by Elizabeth W. Grierson. Now you might remember that name because I did another story by Grierson a while back called The Elfin Knight. This is a different story by the same author, but Elizabeth Wilson Grierson was born in 1869 and died in 1943. She was born at Winchester's, a farm near the Scottish border, where she also lived as an adult. She published more than 30 books, including several collections of Scottish fairy tales, folk tales, and ballads, and also travel guides to Edinburgh and Florence. So since we've done Gerson as an author before, I'll give you the preface, some insight into why she wrote the Scottish fairy book and her love of Scotland. And I hope it makes you very, very sleepy. The Witch of Fife by Elizabeth W. Gerson Preface There are, roughly speaking, two distinct types of Scottish fairy tales, There are what might be called Celtic stories, which were handed down for centuries by word of mouth by professional storytellers, who went about in the highlands and islands, earning a night's shelter by giving a night's entertainment, and which have now been collected and classified. These stories, which are also common to the north of Ireland, are wild and fantastic, and very often somewhat monotonous, and their themes are strangely alike. They almost always tell of some hero or heroine who sets out on some dangerous quest and who is met by giants, generally three in number, who appear one after the other, with whom they hold quaint dialogues and whom eventually they slay. Most of them are fairly long, and although they have a peculiar fascination of their own, they are quite distinct from the ordinary fairy tale. These, latter in Scotland, have also a character of their own, for there is no country where the existence of spirits and goblins has been so implicitly believed in up to a comparatively recent due date. If you listened to the Elfin Knight, you might remember that I said the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, which I think is awesome. Perhaps it was the bleak and stern character of their climate and the austerity of their religious beliefs which made our Scottish forefathers think of the spirits in whom they so firmly believed as being, for the most part, mischievous and malevolent. Their bogies, their witches, their kelpies, even their fairy queen herself, were supposed to be in league with the evil one and to be compelled. But, along with this dark and gloomy view, we find touches of delicate playfulness and brightness. The Fairy Queen might be in league with evil, but her subjects were not all bound by the same law, and many charming tales are told of the Sith or silent folk, who were always spoken of with respect, in case they might be within earshot, who made their dwellings under some 
Rocky Hughes, and who came out and danced on the dewy sward at midnight. Akin to them are the tales which are told about a mysterious region under the sea, far below the abode of fishes, where a strange race of beings lived who, in their own land, closely resembled human beings, and were of such surpassing beauty that they charmed the hearts of all who looked on them. They were spoken of as mermaids and mermen, and as their lungs were not adapted for breathing underwater, they had the extraordinary power of entering into the skin of some fish or sea animal, and in this way, passing from their own abode to our upper world, where they held converse with mortal people, and, as often as not, tried to lure them to their destruction." The popular idea always represents merfolk as wearing the tails of fishes. In Scottish folklore, they are quite often found in the form of seals. Then we frequently come across the brownie, that strange, kindly, lovable creature with its shaggy, unkempt appearance, half man, half beast, who was said to be the ordained helper of men in the drudgery entailed by sin, and was therefore forbidden to receive wages, who always worked when no one was looking, and who disappeared if any notice were taken of him. It may interest you to know that when James IV was a little boy nearly 400 years plus ago, he used to sit on his tutor, Sir David Lindsay's knee, and listen to some of the same stories that are written here. Although, in every case I have told the tale in my own words, I am indebted for the originals. Signed, Elizabeth W. Grierson. Which brings us to one of the stories, The Witch of Fife. In the kingdom of Fife, in the days of long ago, there lived an old man and his wife. The old man was a douce, quiet body, but the old woman was lightsome and flighty, and some of the neighbors were wont to look at her askance and whisper to each other that they sorely feared that she was a witch. And her husband was afraid of it too, for she had a curious habit of disappearing in the gloaming and staying out all night. And when she returned in the morning, she looked quite pale and tired, as if she had been traveling far or working hard. He used to try and watch her carefully in order to find out where she went or what she did, but he never managed to do so, for she always slipped out the door when he was not looking, and before he could reach it to follow her, she had vanished utterly. At last, one day, when he could stand the uncertainty no longer, he asked her to tell him straight out whether she were a witch or no. And his blood ran cold when, without the slightest hesitation, she answered that she was, and if he would promise not to let anyone know, the next time she went out on one of her midnight expeditions, she would tell him all about it. The goodman promised, for it seemed to him just as well that he should know all about his wife's cantrips. He had not long to wait before he heard of them, for the very next week the moon was new, which is, as everyone knows, the time of all others when witches like to stir abroad, and on the first night of the new moon his wife vanished, nor did she return till daybreak next morning. And when he asked her where she had been, she told him in great glee how she and four like-minded companions had met at the old kirk on the moor, 
and had mounted branches of the green bay tree and stalks of hemlock, which had instantly changed into horses, and how they had ridden, swift as the wind, over the country, hunting the foxes and the weasels and the owls, and how at last they had swam the forth and come to the top of Belle Le Monde, and how there they had dismounted from their horses and drunk a beer that had been brewed in no earthly brewery out of horn cups that had been fashioned by no mortal hands. And how, after that, a wee, wee man had jumped up from under a great mossy stone with a tiny set of bagpipes under his arm, and how he had piped such wonderful music that, at the sound of it, the very trouts jumped out of the lock below, and the stoets crept out of their holes, and the corby crows and the herons came and sat on the trees in the darkness to listen and how all the witches danced until they were so weary that when the time came for them to mount their steeds again, if they would be home before cock crow, they could scarce sit on them for fatigue. The goodman listened to this long story in silence, shaking his head meanwhile, and when it was all finished, all he answered was, And what the better are ye for all your dancing? Ye'd been more a deal bit more comfortable at home. At the next new moon, the old wife went off again for the night, and when she returned in the morning, she told her husband how, on this occasion, she and her friends had taken cockle shells for boats and had sailed away over the stormy sea till they reached Norway. And there they had mounted invisible horses of wind and had ridden and ridden over mountains and glens and glaciers till they reached the land of the Laps, lying under its mantle of snow. And here, where all the elves and fairies and mermaids of the north were holding festival, with warlocks and brownies and pixies, and even the phantom hunters themselves, who are never looked upon by mortal eye. And the witches from Fife held festival with them, and danced and feasted and sang with them, and what was of more consequence... They learned from them certain wonderful words, which, when they uttered them, would bear them through the air, and would undo all bolts and bars, and so gain them admittance to any place soever where they wanted to be. And after that they had come home again, delighted with the knowledge which they had acquired. "'What took you to sicken a land as that?' asked the old man with a contemptuous grunt. You would have been a sight warmer in your bed. But when his wife returned from her next adventure, he showed a little more interest in her doings, for she had told him how she and her friends had met in the cottage of one of their number, and how, having heard that the Lord Bishop of Carlisle had some very rare wine in his cellar, They had placed their feet on the crook from which the pot hung, and had pronounced the magic words which they had learned from the elves of Lapland, and lo and behold, they flew up the chimney like whiffs of smoke, and sailed through the air like little wreaths of cloud, and in less time than it takes to tell, they landed at the bishop's palace at Carlisle. And... The bolts and the bars flew loose before them, and they went down to his cellar and sampled his wine, and were back in fife, fine, sober, old women by cock crow. 
When he heard this, the old man started from his chair in right earnest, for he loved good wine above all things, and it was but seldom that it came his way. By my troth, by thou art a wife to be proud of, he cried. Tell me the words, woman, and I will go in and go and sample his lordship's wine for myself. But the good wife shook her head. Nana, I cannot do that, she said, for if I did, and ye told it all over again, twould turn the whole world upside down, for everybody would be leaving their own lawful work and flying about the world after old folks' business and other folks' dainties. So just bide content, goodman. Ye get on fine with the knowledge ye already possess. And although the old man tried to persuade her with all the soft words he could think of, she would not tell him her secret. But he was a sly old man, and the thought of the bishop's wine gave him no rest. So night after night he went, and hid in the old woman's cottage in the hope that his wife and her friends would meet there. And although for a long time it was all in vain, at last his trouble was rewarded. For one evening the whole five old women assembled, and in low tones and with chuckles of laughter they recounted all that had befallen them in Lapland. Then, running to the fireplace, they, one after another, climbed on a chair and put their feet on the sooty crook. Then they repeated the magic words, and hey presto, they were up the lum and away before the old man could draw his breath. I can do that too, he said to himself, and he crawled out of his hiding place and ran to the fire. He put his foot on the crook and repeated the words, and up the chimney he went and flew through the air after his wife and her companions, as if he had been a warlock born. And, as witches are not in the habit of looking over their shoulders, they never noticed that he was following them, until they reached the bishop's palace and went down into his cellar. Then, when they found that he was among them, they were not too well pleased. However, there was no help for it, and they settled down to enjoy themselves. They tapped this cask of wine, and they tapped that, drinking a little of each, but not too much, for they were cautious old women, and they knew that if they wanted to get home before cock crow, it behooved them to keep their heads clear. But the old man was not so wise, for he sipped and he sipped, until at last he became quite drowsy, and lay down on the floor and fell fast asleep. And his wife, seeing this, thought that she would teach him a lesson not to be so curious in the future. So when she and her four friends thought that it was time to be gone, she departed without waking him. He slept peacefully for some hours until two of the bishop's servants came down to the cellar to draw wine for their master's table, almost fell over him in the darkness greatly astonished at his presence there, for the cellar door was fast locked. They dragged him up to the light and shook him and cuffed him and asked him how he came to be there. And the poor man was so confused at being awakened in this rough way, and his head seemed to whirl around so fast that all he could stammer out was that he came from Fife and that he had traveled on the midnight wind. Now as soon as they heard that, the men servants cried out that he was a warlock, and they dragged him before the bishop. 
And as bishops in those days had a holy horror of warlocks and witches, he ordered him to be burned alive. When the sentence was pronounced, you may be very sure that the poor old man wished with all his heart that he had stayed quietly at home in bed and never hankered after the bishop's wine. But it was too late to wish that now, for the servants dragged him out into the courtyard and put a chain round his waist and fastened it to a great iron stake, and they piled sticks of wood round his feet and set them alight. At first, the tiny little tongue of flame crept up. The poor old man thought that his last hour had come, but when he thought that, he forgot completely that his wife was a witch. For just as the little tongue of flame began to singe his breeches, there was a swish and a flutter in the air, and a great gray bird with outstretched wings appeared in the sky and swooped down suddenly and perched for a moment on the old man's shoulder. And in this gray bird's mouth was a little red peony, which to everyone's amazement it popped onto the prisoner's head. Then it gave one fierce croak and flew away again. But to the old man's ears, that croak was the sweetest music that he had ever heard. For him, it was the croak of no earthly bird, but the voice of his wife whispering words of magic to him. And when he heard them, he jumped for joy, for he knew that they were words of deliverance. And he shouted them aloud, and his chains fell off, and he mounted in the air up and up, while the onlookers watched him with awestruck silence. He flew right away to the kingdom of Fife, without so much as saying goodbye to them, and when he found himself once more safely at home, you may be very sure that he never tried to find out his wife's secrets again, but left her alone to her own devices. The End Just as a point of reference, there was a fairly famous case in Scotland, the Witches of Fife, going back to March 1704. Beatrice Lang approached Patrick Morton, a 16-year-old working in his father's smithy or smith shop, and asked if he would make her some nails. Morton refused, as he was already assigned to an urgent task, making nails for a merchant ship in the harbor. Displeased, she left threatening revenge. The next day, Morton noticed a bucket filled with water and a burning coal outside Lang's house, and he thought it was there to cast a spell on him. She had a reputation as a witch, having already appeared before what was called the Kirk Session in 1696 for charming, quote-unquote. Morton immediately felt weak and had difficulty standing or walking. His health deteriorated quickly, and he began having fits and convulsions. His stomach became distended, or so they say, and his body was rigid and twisted. People claimed they could see marks left on his skin by fingernails, where Morton said he had been pinched. After that, of course, several women, including Lang, were called witches because they had a reputation for casting spells and threatening anyone that they were quarreling with. So the locals took over. And it didn't end well. 
So perhaps this story is a way of saying, in this version, the witches win. Thank you so much for listening and for all the downloads and the amazing comments. As always, I really do appreciate all of you listening to this podcast, and I hope it's helping you get some sleep or at least calming your minds. If this is your first time, welcome. Thank you for listening, and I'll hope you'll join us again. Keep an ear out for next week's story. I'm Ashley Lambert, and this is Very Sleepy. Until next time, good night.